On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. This is Andy Wilson along with co-host Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. How are you doing today? Good. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andrew. Good to see you guys as always. Today's guest on the Music Buzz podcast is now in his seventh decade, the legendary singer, songwriter, author, and rock and roll star Ian Hunter, whose illustrious career has long been marked by collaboration from the golden age of Mott the Hoople to his fabled partnership with Nick Ronson and 21st century renaissance with his crack backing combo, The Rant Band. Now, with his new album, which is stellar and amazing, Defiance Part One, Hunter shows he still has something to prove, and prove it he does. Welcome to the Music Buzz, Ian Hunter. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, Ian. All right. It's such a treat to talk to you today. I'm going to just blabber here for a little bit. It was about, I think, 23 years ago when you and I first met, and I recorded drum tracks for the songs Rip Off and Knees of My Heart in New York City when you were making the Rant album. I remember the day well. I also watched you record vocals on the that great song, Soap and Water, which was amazing. The other part of the day that I remember well is sharing a little bit of smoke. Uh, and we walked to my hotel to drop off my stick bag and drum pedal, which you carried, my drum pedal. Ian Hunter was my roadie for five or ten minutes. Uh, and uh, Andy Yorka and myself and you went and had fish and chips dinner and, and hung out and laughed. Uh, you couldn't have been nicer that day, man. It was a very special day to me. And we've seen each other a couple times since then. I played live on the Bob and Tom radio show with you. And I think that was the same year that Rant came out. And then uh, there was a corporate show that you and Andy and you were playing kind of an acoustic show in Indianapolis. And I was knee slapping and playing tambourine with you that day. Those were great times. And then last year, you gave me the opportunity to make a major contribution to your killer new record, Defiance Part One, a project that's receiving a lot of attention for its great songs and star-studded guest appearances. And I just got the new Mojo magazine yesterday. Four stars, man. Great review. And it says, buoyant, celebratory, and defiant, giving the middle finger to ageism and retirement. How about that? Folks, anybody listening to the Music Buzz podcast here, this is one of the best collections of songs and performances I've heard by anybody, anywhere, anytime. So, Ian, could you start out just telling us how this project came to fruition, how you got started and and saw this project through? We did the the 74 thing at the Beacon in New York, and then I did like four nights with the Ramp Band at the winery for my birthday. That was June. And then September, I woke up one morning and it was COVID and it was tinnitus. So it was like a, a double barreled uh, pick in the guts for everybody, really. And then, uh, you know, I mean, everybody's sitting around. The rap band doesn't have a studios. Um, meanwhile, at the winery, um, this guy, Mike Kobayashi, uh, said, you know, he'd like to manage me. And I thought anybody want to manage an 80-year-old, you know, I got to do that. That's interesting. 
you know, we're all talking, and then there's another guy, Ross Halfin, famous photographer. So we were out with Mike, and they were saying, you know, well, you know, the Mount Band's home, but they ain't got studios, and then there's other guys that do have studios. Maybe we should, you know, see if that, that might work out in some way or other. And the next thing I knew, Slash was going to do something, which you wound up on, and and uh, Billy Gibbons. That were the, They were the first two, and it, the whole thing was really a fluke caused by COVID. Well, it doesn't sound like a fluke, I can it tell you that. It sure doesn't. Yeah. yeah, the first song, I mean, just defiance man that's just slapping people around man anybody that i've played this record for is just over the moon about it the variety of music the things you have to say it's, a, it's an important record i'm very pleased to be a part of it you mentioned uh tinnitus which is something that most of us that have been in this music business have to deal with a little bit in various degrees i've I, it comes and goes with me too it can keep you from sleeping sometimes or it can me it's something that everybody should be very careful. Protect your ears. Well, certainly drummers and bass players. You know, it seems to it seems to be the symbols, the main culprit. Uh, I have to say that because I, I talk to bass players, and it's usually the ear nearest the symbols. <laughs> yeah, right there next to the drummer. Yeah, but mine's more like a head thing. It's it's not like an ear thing, you know. But you know, it's annoying. What are you going to do? Everybody's got something by the time they reach my exalted age. Can't complain. For an exalted of your age to be doing music like this is almost unprecedented. It gives us all hope. <laughs> the collection of rock stars for our listeners. Let me let me read this off for the new record that he just put out. We got Slash, Todd Rundgren, Billy Gibbons, Jeff Beck, Johnny Depp, Duff McKagan, Taylor Hawkins. You've got the guys from Stone Temple Pilots, Joe Elliott. You got Ringo Starr. You got this drummer from Indiana, Dane Clark, I think is his name. That is his name. And of course, Andy York and more. So, you know, you mentioned that COVID obviously was, you know, kind of how this all started. But as it bumped along, you know, was it one of those things where you'd be writing a song and you thought, gosh, man, this would be a great one for Jeff Beck or this would be a great one for so-and-so. Like, what was the process as it continued Looking down this list, it's not just a who's who. It's like the it's every it person I could. If I made a dream record, Ian, I would make it with the people that you made your record with. I mean, yeah, no kidding, incredible. So, can you talk about kind of how it how it rolled along? Well, what happened was um, Andy York played a big part in this. You know, I'm sitting downstairs. I don't have a studio. I used to have one, but I got caught up in algorithms and I couldn't understand and I couldn't write a song either. So. I, I stopped doing all that, so I hadn't got any gear. All I've got downstairs is a piano, like a V5, and you know a few guitars and stuff like that. So, so Andy came around, and he came around with a little black box with XLRs sticking out of it and a computer, and he said, "Let's let's do it this way." So I had a, a keyboard that did straight four fours on drums, and he had a keyboard like a one octave keyboard, a little thing that had better drum sounds on it. So I put the piano down with the drum off the machine that I had, and then he kind of developed the drum part to get Because, you know, Andy was a drummer before he was a guitar player. So he was trying to give more direction to the eventual drummer. And then I sang, and we only had one pair of earphones. So when I sang, we had Andy had to guess if it was all right, because I was using the earphones, and so he was only hearing the vocal. He was basically hearing me a cappella. So that didn't matter because these were demos, you know. But then he's going, uh, these aren't bad, you know. Let's see what happens. And then you get somebody like Dean DeLeo saying, don't change the vocals. And Andy's going, I think they're all right. And Andy's a hard taskmaster. I mean, I've done four or five albums, yeah. And he, he, it's like, do it again, do it again, do it again. You know, he wasn't saying this. He was like, let's see how it goes, you know. It sounded all right to me. We sent them down to Hoboken to this studio that Tony Shanahan has a partnership in. And there's a guy there, an engineer called Frazee, James Frazee, he's brilliant. And uh, he tarted them up a bit, so they sounded better. What we've got, they're still demos. And uh, we just sent them, you know, and for them that are like uninitiated, they're stems now. It used to be faders, but they're stems that sort of fly through to the air and didn't go or to whatever, you know. 
And they get them and they either go like, yeah, well, I don't like this and I'm not doing it. Or they go, well, yeah, I like this and I'm going to do it, you know. And then they stem back, you know. And, and uh, again, we, crazy gets hold of them. What they've done, in the case of Defiance, Flash sent about six tracks, six stems back, you know. And Frazy sort of picked the best out of it, you know. Other people sent them back like done, you know what I mean? Ringo sent back completely done. And that was it. And same with Mike Campbell. You know, some some sent you a variation, you know. I just had a call from Lucinda Williams for the second part. And, uh, you know, she's given you the option. Of course, Andy's co-producing. He has a major part of the play in this. You know, he's at the foot of it all, you know. He's out there doing a big, long tour with you. You must be totally big. Oh, dude, we're fried. I'll bet. Yeah, it's like eight. Yes, almost 80 gigs. And we still have... In two months, we still got, I don't even know how many. I'm trying not to count. Yeah, right. We're, we're getting through it. Yeah, Ian, you can't see the on the camera right now, but Dane's actually hasn't made it to his house. He's laying out on the front lawn trying to make it into the <laughs> That's house. That's not true. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't blame it. We're soldiering on. It's, it's all good. It's good to be out working again after four years of not being able to do anything. So it must be a wonderful feeling for you to get this record out. Because you had to wait. I know you had to wait a lot because everybody has to wait for vinyl. It's like an eight-month-out order for anybody to make all that stuff happen. So Yeah, you know, it's kind of like pregnancy without the end. <laughs> That's <you> excellent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Trying to think back on all the different records of yours that I've been a fan since. The first record I heard, and of course I heard the All, all the Young Dudes record, which was 72, I think. So I've been following you since then since that Martha Hoople record and at that time I had no idea that there were four earlier Martha Hoople records that had come out and could could you tell us a little bit about how can we go back and how you ended up joining that band and what that period of time was like working its way up to Bowie producing the all the young dudes project well, I've been in factories I have 34 44 jobs I think but I can only account for 34. So, you know, the usual thing, growing up in the sticks, you know, and semi-pro bands. And, you know, I eventually wound up going to Germany. I met a guy called Freddie Fingers Lee, who was England's double of Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, he genuinely was. He was a really good singer, and he was a country freak. And uh, I wound up doing that with him, and that was in Germany. And that was when I thought maybe I was a bass player with Fred. And I kept on thinking I should be in the front, you know. Fred was going like, you're writing, you're writing good songs, but you can't sing them. You're useless. Fred was singing them when I was trying to write them. And I wound up at Francis Day and Hunter, which was a publishing company in, in Regent Street in London. It took about 20 years to get to London because London's kind of like New York. It a lot more to live in London. You know, you couldn't afford to move there. But eventually, one thing led to another. And I'm working Francis Day and Hunter. And the, that's just opposite Denmark Street in London, which had a place called Regent Sound. And Reason Sound was the equivalent of Sun Records. It was where everything started. Little four track, Stone's first album, you know that. And uh, I knew the guy in there, Bill Farley, and he rang me up one night and he said, you know, there's a weird looking mob in here and they're auditioning singers and uh, they don't like anybody. Why don't you uh, pop by? And so I went to the audition. They kind of, He'll do till somebody else comes along, that kind of a thing, you know. We weren't over enthused. And it sort of went from there. You You'll know? do till somebody else comes along, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it, because Guy wanted it. Guy wanted me, because he wanted a Bob Dylan with the Rolling Stone. And uh, the band were dubious. The, the band thought, you know, like, because I didn't, I turned up in a two piece corduroy suit with sandals, and I was a little overweight. So they, they thought the image was not quite what they were looking for. So a couple of days later, a guy rang me up and said, you know, look, uh, you look terrible. Can I take you to a tailor or something? And I thought, that's commitment. That's great, you know, after all these years, you know. And he took me to a tailor. And that was when I heard Van Morrison for the first time at that tailor. Great day in my life. This guy spent 100 quid. That was commitment, you know. I was definitely in the band, you know. And... Uh, it just sort of went from there. You know? And that, the first record, I'm trying to remember the, the album covered. It's the Lizards. Yeah, the Lizards, the first one. Yeah, my first album was the other one. Yeah, the Lizards. Yeah, because he MCS was he turned the Stones down. 
And Guy said, well, we're just going to do it anyway, you know. And and he never sued us or anything, so it was great. Oh, so you didn't even really have uh, permission, you just did it. That's great. Yeah, right. And then we got away with it once, so then I thought, you know, I'll have a go at it again, you know, and we did it again with my first solo album. And he never said anything, so that was that. You know. did, the, were you, did you commission him? I always thought this was just something that you licensed, so he worked with you. No, no, no they just did it, and they didn't tell him. Yeah, well, early seventies, all lawyers. Oh, yeah, I know the, I know the cover well. Yeah, it's a beautiful cover. Yeah. So your first, so the first solo, I'm trying to remember. That's like your head in space. Yeah, that's the type thing. Yeah. Okay, so that was Asher, mm -hmm. sort of. It was based on Asher. You know, somebody messed with it a little bit, but it was Asher. How involved in the actual development of art were you? And and when you were growing up, how, how much did album covers matter to you? Or were you all about the music? Well, I liked doing art growing up. I actually had a picture on the TV, you know. I mean, I couldn't do it now, but I did do a lot of that at the time because there wasn't much going on. You're talking about before TV, you know, and uh, and a lot of, I mean, we didn't get TV in England. I mean, the Ritz didn't get it till I was about 11 or 12. We got it when I was about fourteen. So you know, you, 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 I drew a lot. I drew. That's what I was doing before I started singing. Were you good? I was at that time, but now I wouldn't stand a chance. You know, I've seen so much amazing stuff that, like, uh, you know, even on a local level, you know, people just got that gift. What was your interest when you were drawing? Were you drawing representational stuff or trippy stuff? I just remember, I'll tell you what it was like in those days, because everything in my life kind of works with reverse reverse psychology, right? I, I painted this thing, and it was a, a local factory where I eventually actually worked, so, and it was called Sentinel in a town called Shrewsbury. And it had odd kind of like roofs and everything, so I painted it, and I sent it in for a BBC television competition. And uh, we're watching the results on the Saturday, and and uh, and it came on. It came third in like you know eleven to twelve year olds or whatever it was. It came third. Yeah, my mother screamed. My father was rushing in. He was a cop next door. He came rushing in. And so on the next Monday morning, I, I go to school and I see the art master at the Priory Grammar School in Shrewsbury, and uh, I said, "Sir, you know, I got my picture on TV on on Saturday night. You know, like uh, I, I won this. I was part of this. I came third in this competition." And he went, and he said, "Well, he didn't say much for the others then, does it?" <laughs> nice guy. It's funny how envy works, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's fabulous. Um, do you have that painting? Do you still have it? No, I don't know what I did. It's long gone. No, that's. I mean, that's a long time ago. You know, that's ecology thing. You know, it's like you can't do it. Yes, I'm going to do it. And it runs all the way through right to defiance. Yeah, because my dad was a cop, and he didn't like the idea at all. You know, music and. Uh, a lot of kids in England. That, it was like it was like that in England. You know, your dad came home from the army, came home from the war. The place was pretty dismal. You know, and there wasn't much money around, and they, uh, and uh, they all wanted you to be like they were, and it just seemed a bit boring and a bit uh, dismal. And then, of course, Little Richard turned up. Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley is like, whoa, what's coming out of America? You know, so. Loomed large, you know. It was like, whoa. You weren't alone in that, obviously, because of the British invasion. I mean, oh yeah, everybody in England and the the, the London guys and the Liverpool guys were well ahead, you know, because they were port cities. The Americans were coming in, you know, and I moved to a place called Northampton, which which is Midlands, but it was surrounded by American bases. So I got to hear a lot of the stuff, you know. That must have been an incredible time for i mean you know it's kind of like our age folks me seeing the beatles on ed sullivan for for you guys in that generation it was like god you got elvis you get chuck berry little richard some of the greatest stuff of yeah jerry lee some of the greatest stuff of all time man a whole lot, whole lot of shaking was the actual track i remember hearing it and thinking this is what i'm here for and you're still banging that piano like that man hell yes yeah, not as good, but, you know, I got no way with it. Did you, did you take piano lessons when you were younger? No. Just bought a 30 bob, you know, a couple of dollars, old upright, you know, with half the keys missing, you know. Everybody did that, you know. 
and uh, banged away. And because you didn't have a drummer sitting there like that, you know, it was uh, your left hand was doing it. And my left hand turned into a snare, you know. Some of the best music is written on uprights with missing keys, slightly out of tune. You know, Tom, Tom Waits, e even some of Neil Young's stuff is, it's not performed on a big grand piano. It's just performed on a very intimate upright piano. So, yeah. And the keys were missing. You know, I remember I, I had this 30 bob one in Wembley in London when I was with Mott and I'd written a couple of songs. And then... Uh, I was panicking because I, I I was only writing on the white keys, you know, because I I didn't. Uh, so I went to the black, you know. And that's how I got all the way from Memphis and rolled away the stone. Because if you if you don't know what you're doing, you got more of a shot. Those are very sophisticated songs for uh, uh, somebody that doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, that's for sure. Just finding the blissful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was listening to Honolulu Boogie last night and. You guys ought to put your ear on that again because the, what you guys have going there, you got the de descending and the ascending lines going at the same time on that chorus. That's really an incredible song. <laughs> I hate it. You hate it? <laughs> no, I don't even know what it means. I mean, the verses are okay, but the whole Lucy Boogie bit, that was just a working title because it was the only thing that fit. Buff and Pete, the rhythm section in Mark, you know, they were the guys that decided what went on records. And I was going, we can't put this on the rock. It doesn't make any sense, you know. And they're going, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine as it is. Because they had that pop sensibility, you know. I never had that. I thought everything had to mean something, you know. To that point, I, I always find it fascinating. And I'm, I'm, I'm always asking musicians, you know, what comes first? I mean, it's the chicken or the egg. Do you have, do you have a conceptual idea or a title or a lyric first? Or do you always find the, the chord structure and and the arrangement drives your your lyrical discovery anything oh <laughs> it, all, it all works yeah, anything it can be uh you know you wake up with it it can be uh anything it can be something you backwards of a car that draws next to you literally anything and words come easily to you lyrics come easily to you no i have to work at it i might i might get a line here and there and everywhere but if the if the song's strong, yeah, it'll persist in your head. You'll wait, you know, it'll, your mind will help you. But some of them, you know, they take forever. Memphis was six months. I couldn't find out what that was about at all. You know, it's kind of like a house. You just have to go in every room. That's a song right there, man. There it is. Write that down. Well, if you don't, if you don't, I'm stealing it. But yeah, it was hard. I mean, we had the piano. It was all done. It had been recorded, but I still didn't have the words. You know. And that was that took a while. That was heavy going, because that was after dudes and and everybody's you know they can't do it without David you know, um, so it was really important that we produced at that point in time. Well, you showed them because that's that's the greatest Mott record as far as I'm concerned. I mean, man, I wish I was your mother. Uh, him for the dudes, Ballad of Mott, Driving Sisters. That on there? Yeah, I think so. That's a damn good piece of work, man. Well, one of my favorite pieces that you have written, and one of the truest pieces, which breaks your heart to listen to, but it's in a good way, is Michael Picasso. It's a lovely, lovely piece. It's a masterpiece. It's, it's incredible. Well, I was with him, you know, and uh, it was extremely sad, you know, because he just signed a, a solo deal with Epic and, and he was producing Morrissey. Yeah. Yeah, he had everything to live for, you know, and it was... Uh, it was a real tragedy, and it it kind of woke me up actually. I hadn't really been trying that hard, and when he when that happened, I mean, he was forty six. Do, do something, you know. You've got this somewhat of a gift, you know. Do something, and everything I've done since is likely because of what happened to Nick. You know, Neil Peart had a wonderful prophetic lyric from years ago, and he's had him he had himself a a trying life, even though he was blessed and he had a good ride too, but. We are only immortal for a limited time. And you can't waste it. And uh, You know, Mick was lazy and I was lazy. We, um, we worked on and off for about 17 years. But he wound up, he, he had no money. You know what I mean? He was skint. I didn't have much, but I had a couple of covers, so I was doing better. But uh, for a guy with that kind of talent, it was, you know, he, he wound up, you know, because uh, he'd go on like he went on the Dylan tour, you know, and he was a useless 
he was hopeless at cards. So they'd get him playing cards, you know, and he'd be good for about 10 minutes. Then he, he just couldn't concentrate anymore. So he'd get wiped out. He's the only guy on that tour, the Rolling Thunder re Review Tour, that got a bill. They all lined up what wages, you know what I mean? Checks at the end of it. He had to pay to play. He got a bill. Yeah. Oh, shit. His, his wife was not amused. I just watched that again, the the Rolling Thunder review thing. Uh, if you guys haven't seen that, you ought to check it out. It's, what a great player, man. And and the record you guys did, Why You, I, I Order, that had some really great songs on it too, man. bit produced, you know, but um, yeah. It was a shame because Dick Asher got fired. That album and like about 160 albums that were coming out at that time, it was a mess, you know, because Dick got fired. And he was the president of the company. And as, uh, as you know, you know, like when, when the president gets fired, his team gets fired with him and a whole new lot come in and they've got their favorites. And the whole situation changes. So it kind of suffered from, from that, that particular record. Yeah. Uh, that song, American Music, man, I always loved it. That's, I don't know, you know, with the marketing and everything, it might have, it might have happened, but because, because of the, the whole record situation, it didn't, it didn't stand a challenge. Who did the artwork on Defiance? This guy, Alan Bull, he came by my house one day. and He's an artist. You can Google him. He did that cover in 20 minutes. That's great. I love it. Yeah, he's, he's one of those guys. He can just make a few strokes and you know who it is. I love the yellow. The yellow just really pops. Well, the yellow I said, I said, because it was Sun Records yellow. And also, when you're looking in the, in the rack, you know what I mean? He's I've had several people ask me if I recorded my drum tracks at Sun Studios. On the record, I said, well, no, that'd have been fun, but no. It is cool that it's the Sun label. You'd have had a problem in that room, though, Dan, because uh, it's a loud room. You know? I know. Right? And I love the old school presence. And this is one of those labels. I have a lot of record companies going back to Geffen who would say, we want our logo on the front cover. And I'd be going, you got to be kidding. And it was a mandate. you know. And sometimes sometimes I would just, just leave it off and forget about it. And the printer would produce it. And it it would go out without the logo on it. So I got away with it a few times. But back in those days, everybody from CBS, Columbia, they all wanted their RCA. Their logo was on the front cover. That just makes this really kind of special. I like it. I, I had to go on that yellow label. You know, that's where it all started. And that's where I wanted to, you know, finish up. Yeah. Tell us about working with Jaco Pastorius. I know he lived with you for a while. I think Andy told me this. Yeah, he was he was living with Bobby Columbia just over the Tappanzee Bridge, and uh, I had a place just the other side, this the New York side. And I, Bobby told me about him, and I went to see him, and he was kind of sitting on a stool, basically performing for all these jazz people that that um, Bobby was bringing up to see him, because Bobby had found him in Florida. Bobby hit on a waitress in Florida. And the waitress wasn't having any. And she said, by the way, my husband is the best bass player in the world. So Bobby's kind of stuck now. So he goes, all right, well, I'll bring him in, you know. The following day, they brought him in. And, of course, he was the bass player, best bass player. So Bobby brought him up. But he was a Stones fanatic. And really? uh, Yeah, yeah, he loved the Rolling Stones. And he, I just happened to fall in at the right time. You know, he liked what I was doing lyrically. And... Uh, so in the end, he left Bobby's place and he came and stayed with us. And he practiced eight hours a day, seven days a week. We'd hear this from, yeah. And he said, it's easy. You can be great at anything. Three years, eight hours a day, seven days a week. Because he'd been a drummer. Uh, and if something had happened with his wrists or something, so he couldn't play the drums anymore. So he, now he'd gone to bass. And he finally be the best bass player for him. <laughs> And he was, you know, he was only 21 when I knew him. That was the short back and sides. No, I was a Canadian boy. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I had a few few amazing people on that record. Yeah. Um, he's, he, he was like, we would come, we couldn't afford to stay in the city. So we would come down from the country and then we would do Electric Lady. Then we'd go up. There was a club on the way back where all these Jazz guys were playing that Jocko liked to go to. So we'd be in there till five, back up to the country, and then back down, you know, went on for two weeks. And in the car, he told dirty jokes for two weeks, there and back, and he never repeated himself once. Really? What an interesting guy. His solo, you know, like, uh, he was so good even then. I mean, I'm, 
that's why there's a solo in All American Alien Boy. You know, I just thought that we we've got to have a solo off him. You know, he's so brilliant. So we put it in this weird place where nobody puts bass solos. You know, it worked. It was great. Well, you're asking about old stories. I got to know this one too. So we're all based in Indiana. I'm in Indianapolis, and Danes and Anderson, and Hughes in Newcastle. So we're all Indiana. So I hear you spent the night in jail one night in Indianapolis. Can you tell us that story? We were in the Holiday Inn, and Charlie Fane, he managed Shanana. Shanana, okay. Yeah, he managed Shanana. He, he died a while back. It was great. He had us there, and he was paying us 10 grand, Mark, to, to play in some place. But it must have been quite big, because that was a lot of money. And we're sitting in the Holiday Inn, and there's a woman in there, and there's a man in there, there's a woman's behind the bar, and, the, and, the, and a guy's hanging out. And there's the three of us, me, I think it might have been Luther, Grosvenor, and uh, and Charlie. And the money went missing from his jacket. Uh, my dad was a cop, so I'm up in arms, shut the doors, lock everything, you know. The guy's lost 10 grand. Well, the guy that had been hanging about was an off-duty sergeant. And I got in an argument with him. And the uh, next thing I know, I'm, da I'm downtown, you know. They call for a car, and down I go. And 6 a.m. the following morning, I'm in the holding, holding cell below where you go up. And that guy, now he's calling me Ian. The night before, I was uh, an asshole, you know, but now I'm here. And I'm sitting with that. They're actually talking about the gig that night, you know, in this place below. Uh, these kids were talking about it, and I didn't have my glasses with me or anything. So, and I looked like terrible, you know, so it was great. They didn't know who I was. And uh, you go up, and the judge doesn't even look at you. Well, how do you plead? And the guy had come in at 6 a.m. and said, plead guilty. Ian, and it's 35 bucks. I said, I didn't do anything. He said, yeah, you plead innocent. You've got to come back next Monday. And I couldn't because I was on the road, you know. So I'm standing there, and the guy's not looking at me, and he said, how do you plead? And I said, guilty. And he could have said anything. But then that same guy just went up and whispered in his ear, and he said, 35 bucks, and that was it. And I was out of there. And we wow. played that. So what, that would have been in the 70s, probably 74 or 5 or something. Yeah, yeah, Luther was in the band, yeah, so, but yeah, back end. There was no deportation in the mix, that's good. No, no, it was just, well, actually, it did stick. It did stick, because for years, coming back from England, I would always get shoved in that room, and then, uh, for a while, I didn't, and then, maybe 10 years later, I did again, they started stopping me again, and you know they won't talk to you in that room, it's really hard, but I got this one guy's eye, and I said, why is this? And he said, the computers have improved. They don't let it go. You're right. I, I I know a very famous manager for a band, and when he was 16, he got caught for like a half a joint at some fairgrounds. Some fairgrounds. He's a multimillionaire. He's super successful, and he still gets hassled and taken into the small room. And it's a pain because your wife's waiting out with the luggage, and sometimes there's 50 people in that room. Yeah, yeah. They've all got to be cleared. They got about four guys working on it, and. Um, these guys don't like, they're, they're, take your hands off the counter. You know, it's all very official. You know, not have a chat with them or anything. You know, it's just, uh, but I find that quite That's what it was, yeah. On to more positive questions. I'm curious to know, of all the songs you've written, all the lyrics you've written, what is one of the dearest lyrics, one of, the, one of your favorite achievements lyrically? Because, you know, reading through your lyrics, I mean, they, they really are good. They're superbly written. I like always was your mother because it's simple. I like I hate hate because it's simple. Um, the simpler the better, you know. Ships, yeah, that was nice, you know, about my dad. Dandy is clever. That was a clever song too. Well, that was going to be uh, something else, and then I heard David had gone, you know, and it just it was going to be called Lady. I was working on a song called Lady. When I found out he'd passed, I, I just Dandy, you know. And uh, the words came easy, you know, because I spent some time with him, you know, and, and uh, I was extremely grateful for what he'd done for us at one point, you know. Yeah, tell tell us about that, when he kind of stepped in and kind of saved the band. We'd been in Switzerland. We'd been in lousy gigs in Switzerland. Switzerland's not like the most excitable place in the world anyway, but we've been in gas tanks, and um, we decided to split up. So we went home, split up. And Pete, the bass player, rang Dave up for a, a job uh, because David was just forming a band around, around that time. 
And David's like, you can't do that. He went, Martin, no, no, we've finished. We're done. We've had it. And David was like, really? We didn't know, but he was a fan. And he said, uh, take this back to the band. So Pete came all around the houses and he, uh, he had Suffragette City, which we thought was good, but we didn't think it was because we'd had stuff on the radio and that hadn't happened. And so radio was closed to us. So it was going to have to be something really special. And uh, so we turned down Suffragette City. Then Pete came around with, no, we went down Regent Street in London and he was in there and he sat on the floor and he played dudes on an acoustic. First thing I, I thought I can sing this. And the second was like, this is surefire. This can't miss. And he'd actually done it himself in a lower key with a lot of alto stuff. And he wasn't happy with it. So I think that's the reason he gave it us. And he did he produce the whole record? Yeah, but he didn't think dudes was a hit because he was, I mean, they could put that, Mick Rouse for a start. There's a change there, the intro, you know, fantastic intro. That was Mick. And then he was going on about the hook goes round and round and round and round and round at the end as boring, you know, one of the boys is the single and we're looking at him like you're out of your mind, you know. So then I'd, I'd done this chat on stage a couple of nights previous at uh, the Rainbow in London, we used to have a, a thing called a heckless 10 seconds where, you know, any asshole at the back could shout, you know, F off or whatever. And I'd bring him down the front and douse him with beer, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'd put that rap on the back and David lightened up immediately. He said, yeah, 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 that's great. Because it was just going round and round and round with nothing else going on, you know. So there you go, your first rap song, 1972. Yeah, I love that section at the end. I like the Alpha, the intro. To me, that's amazing. One of the best intros ever. It sure is. That guitar part's fantastic. Yeah, Mick was great. Mick Louse was great. So your relationship with him, obviously, where did that start at? Was it with Mott or was it prior to that? Well, he started the whole thing going because he, he they were in a band called Silence, the four of them. And uh, Mick read up on Island Records, which was the best label in England for a, kind of a, like an independent way of looking at things. And um, he just went up to London and sat in the offices. And he just happened to Guy Stevens because he had long hair. He found out Guy Stevens liked people with long hair who nodded their hair when they nodded their heads violently while they were playing. Because Guy had no concept of music. It was all image. Mick had found this out and he went up and, and Guy actually let him in the office because he just sat outside and he Mick explained it and then Guy said, okay, bring the band up. The band came up and they all nodded their heads furiously with their long hair except Stan, the singer, who was uh, a bit Sinatra looking. Uh, he didn't look right and Guy, Guy said, I'll take the band but I'm not taking you, you know. And uh, Stan became the tour manager. He was with us all the way through. You know. And when I joined the band, none of them spoke to me. None of them spoke to me. Stan was the only one who spoke to me. <laughs> and he was the guy who just kicked out of a job. You were paying dues there with these guys for a while, sounds like it. Well, I'm telling you, they were the Hereford Mafia. So when did they start talking to you? Slowly but surely, you know. They were all from... Wales or just over the border in Herefordshire from Wales, you know, and they're very closed off, closed community. You have communities like that here too, you know, that closed off sort of community thing. And they always had that. I, I never felt like I was in the band. I always felt like I was the outsider, you know. And we got on, we loved each other and all that, don't get me wrong. But when the, I don't know, just sometimes I'd look at each other and it's like, what are they doing, you know? Or there'd be a united front because I was considered to be the leader, even though there was no leader in the band. You know, if it came to telling somebody that something was on fire or something like that, I was the one that had to go in and sort it, you know. What a great band, man. I, I'll never forget hearing uh, all the young dudes on the radio the first time and buy, buying that record and then the Mott record after it. And the Hoople record was great too. Um, and then, of course, it, at the end, very end of the Mott thing is when Mick Ronson came in and you guys cut, what was that single? Uh, Saturday gigs. Yeah. Right. They, they weren't getting on with Mick. Oh. oh, the band wasn't. No, the rhythm section. Like I just said, the Hereford mafia thing again, you know, they just weren't getting on with him. And he came in ready to go. Cause he wanted to show Dave. 
I ran, I said, well, when do you want to rehearse? He said, tomorrow. You know, he was he was in 110%. And uh, so I ring Pete and Buff, and they're decorating their, their living room. Oh, they can't make rehearsal because they're messed around. And... You know what that is. That's, that's the end. You know what I mean? Well, and then that next record that you came out with is, man, what a strong, what a strong one that was, the first Ian Hunter record. Yeah, well, I'd been in hospital and I came out, I was in New Jersey and I came out and I was staying at Bobby Columbus again, actually. And Mick came to Bobby's and that's when we decided we we would leave the band and do a solo thing, you know. Once bitten, twice shy, boy, that's that worked out well for you over the years, too. Yeah. As well as Cleveland Rocks. I was just thinking about, you know, songs that other people have covered. And, of course, Ships, Barry Manilow did that. But Cleveland Rocks, man, I sure loved that, that Drew Carey show was on, cranking that sucker up. They did a great video. I mean, as soon as I saw it, because they kept changing it, you know, before then. And uh, I thought, whoa, that's a stayer. That was a great video. Saw the video, and it was like, you know, they're going to keep this on for a while. You can tell, you know, it's, it's just such a good video. That show had a pretty long run. I can't remember how long, but. It's on now, but they take the music away, obviously, after a while. You know, they don't want to keep on paying out. Wow. So they don't use the theme song? Oh, no, no, not now. Really? Okay. Once Bitten, Twice Shy has to be on, like, every 80s compilation from that era, right? I mean, it's that thing's still on the radio. It's on a few songs, yeah. Now, with that song, was that one where they, you knew that they were recording that song, or you just kind of found out they are recording that song? What, what was the process there? There's a Scottish guy called Michael Niven. I don't know if you ever, David Niven, David Niven. Yeah, he managed Guns N' Roses, didn't he? Right. Alan Niven. Alan, yeah. Landmark Entertainment. All right. Well, he he managed Guns N' Roses, like you say, but he also managed Great White. I did a cover with Great White, an album cover, yeah. Yeah. According to what Axel Rose told me, he found the song, right? And Niven heard heard it and wanted it for Great White, and that's how Great White got it. And, and Great White sold a couple of million, you know, but a Apparently, what Axel wanted it for, it would have got an album that sold seven million. So I was grateful, but I wasn't that grateful. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been a little sweeter if Guns N' Roses had done it. Yeah, huh? you, you were two million grateful versus seven million grateful. That's <laughs> yeah, a big yeah. difference. <laughs> I'm no math genius, but that's, yeah. a, that's a, there's a difference there. Yeah, I can see, I can see that, but su successful nonetheless. That's for sure. So your relationship with Ringo, I got to dig on that a little bit. The, the, you know, the song Better Roses is badass. And I was reading something that said that that song was, you know, about the Star Club back in Hamburg in the 60s. And you played there, right? Did you go there as a fan as well? Can you kind of tell a little bit about that and that song as well? The Star Club was from 62 to 69. And every, the Beatles have played there and... Uh... Little Richard did it. Jerry Lee did it. It was an amazing club. It was like 5 a.m., 5 p.m. to 5 a.m., seven nights a week. Maybe, maybe six, six, five, six bands. And, you know, 5 a.m. bands would intermingle. You know, it, would, it, it was a great gig to do because a lot of the gigs in Hamburg and surrounding, and a lot of them were like, you know, seven hours and you were on your own, you know, a lot of those clubs. But with the Star Club, they would have a major act and then they would have, you know, I always remember they used to have Albanian acts who had daggers in their sash pants, so they always got paid. <laughs> they carried their own daggers. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you could see them, you know, and they always got paid. And they would be the small bands and then gradually you'd have a couple of, maybe a Liverpool band or something and then Little Richard or something like that. So they were 62. I was there 67. With that guy, Freddie Fingers Lee. And uh, it sort of just turned into that. Andy was downstairs with me working away there, you know, and it, it's around 117, I think, which is typical Ringo, you know, head nodding groove. That's why we sent it to him. And he was like, you know, if I like it, I'll do it. If I don't like it, I won't. You know, it's typical Ringo. But four days later, we got it back and it was great. It was perfect. Oh, it's no, it's killer, man. Yeah, as is uh, as is Mike Campbell, you know, it really excellent playing on it. I mean, you you just smiled, stupid surprise, you know. Oh yeah, man, you get you get your song back with Ringo Starr on it and Mike Campbell. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you were stoked. <laughs> you knew you were on to something there. There we go. Sorry. I tell you what's a great 
what's a great song is that song on Mike's uh, Dirty Knobs record that you sing, Dirty Job. Yeah, well, that was the deal. I got him to do two of mine, and then he said, you got to do one of mine. So, fine, you know, he's an amazing player. I mean, his head's great, too. He, you know, he's playing for the song. What was the title Ringo played on again? Little Roses. And uh, I think it was Shani Shanahan from uh, Patti Smith. He's the bass player on that. And Andy's all over the place on the record. You know, he's a great bass player, Andy. You know, movement. Yeah, movement. You know, like, so he's a great, you know, he's you got the lot there. you got the guitar playing, the drums and the bass, you know, and in, and in its initial stage, I mean, it's invaluable what Andy does. And then he sings on, on Better Roses. That's him doing a harmony. But he's not just aping me. He's got a hook of his own. Mono was like that. Ronson was like that. You know, they just know that little bit more. Yeah. And they're a bit finicky too, you know. I mean, I've worked with Andy four albums, I think. God knows how many you must have. And he's finicky. I mean, he wants it right, you know. That's what's made the difference. That's what made this such a great record. Every song on it stands up, man. I hate hate. I got to tell you, I love the lyric video of that. Uh, that just makes me bounce, you know. It's like, and what a great message. We The world needs to hear that. Come on now. I want that T-shirt, too. I, if it hasn't been made, I think it should be. I hate hate would just be a beautiful little... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I got a big thing about it. I don't know if it will happen or not, you know, because those things, it takes a fluke. It's always a fluke, right? To get it out of a small area into the big area. But it's simple it's, and it's direct. And I, I like, I'm happy with that. I really am. I mean, I'm, I don't want to blow my own horn here, but, uh, you know, simplicity and direct, you know. Great vocal, great performance. Yeah. I hate hate because hate's out of date, man. That says it all right there. There's little lines like that, you know, and, and it's not like really, you know, you, you can pick on any color, you can pick on any race, you know, it's not like a direct, and then it's just what you look for as a writer, you know, you don't want to piss off anybody, you know what I mean? But you want to get the point across at the same time. Well, you did it really well there, man. That's for sure. I did wanted to say something uh, to you also that, uh, your song from one of my favorite albums, the older record that you did was the Artful Dodger record. And uh, Tracy and I, at our wedding reception, we had Too Much as one of our dancing songs at the reception. So I don't know how many people have ever told you that, but it's a beautiful song, great groove. One of my favorite records, it, and there's a line, and my favorite song on that record, maybe oddly, but Resurrection Mary, when it comes to heaven, I'm a little bit amateurish. It was. But it's just a great song and a great line. Yeah, Resurrection Mary. Yeah, I actually got a feeling. I was in Chicago and I got a feeling. And there was this long brick wall. And I said to the driver, you know, where is that? And he said, that's Resurrection, you know, the place. The, it's, the, it's the yard. It's the churchyard, you know. Because apparently she was buried there and she would come out and get lifts by cab drivers into the city and go dancing. It really appealing. Yeah, yeah, it's a really appealing song. And there's guys that swear blind. She she actually would stand by the by the side of the road and hail a cab, and she she had this white flowing robe, you know. It's a really good story. It's kind of like the Loch Ness monster, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that's. I wondered what the if that was just a fix. So that was that is an actual story that you. Oh yeah, that's a well known story. Yeah, I'm going to listen to it again with that in mind. I love I love stuff like that, you know. It's great when you you get those little odd things, you know, that nobody's heard of, you know, and you can get a lyric out of it. It's great. Well, Guernica, too, what a great song and pleasure to have played on that. Lyrics are really good on that. Love them rolls. Oh, thank you. Oh, my press rolls? Yeah. Comes in with a tenor guitar. At the end, uh, you know, like where the whole thing goes and Mike comes up the top. Yeah, it sounds amazing, yeah. Well, thanks very much. Uh, just a... What a pleasure to, I mean, lyrically, how long did that song take you? Not long, because I, I knew about Guernica. I'd lived in a place on the South Coast where they brought the orphans from Guernica after, you know, during the war. Guernica was a village that they bombed. And they not only bombed the village, they bombed people leaving the village, you know, which I thought was despicable. And you just put yourself in Picasso's place because he's surrounded by Nazis. You know, not necessarily Germans, but Nazis. Trying to, he's trying to get away with this right in front of their nose, you know. And that's how I pictured it. It's classic. That's all I can say. Are you touring? Nah. To cut the long story short, no. <laughs> I'm waiting for him because I think it's July, July or something, or 
I'm waiting for Andy so we can finish off because we're about 60% through part two. That's my first thing, getting rid of that, you know, and then we'll have a look, you know. But I don't know if I can go full band and all that, you know, with the tinnitus. Might have to do the Q&A and, the, and the, maybe acoustic, you know, stuff like that. That'd be great, though. And bring that piano with the broken keys, too. Although I kind of fancy doing something like that and make a change. Not only that, your voice carries it anyways. You know, you yes, all the band work and all the arrangements and so on have been stellar. But I think listening to you just tell your stories with, with songs like that in an intimate setting would be amazing. Well, there's people doing it, you know. seems to be the, uh, you know, I know they're doing it in England. I know Dave Davis does one, Ray Davis does one about the kinks. And who wants to an 85-year-old jumping around, you know? Well, I'll be looking forward to seeing that, man. I hope that comes to fruition for sure. I would fly to England if it was just something you did over there. I mean, it would, it'd be fabulous to see it. It'd be great to see you here. Well, there was talk of that. There was talk of that. You know, there's some people involved that, uh, that uh, are talking about doing it. You know, in, a, in another way. So we'll see. But I can't really, I can't really talk about it. I know. Keep us posted, though. Yeah. Well, Ian, what a pleasure, man. Anytime you like, guys. I'll call you back tomorrow. We'll call you back tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Every day at every day at four. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, it's, it's great what you've done on the record. This is the least I could do to repay you. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's been it's my pleasure. And we really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. Congratulations on the new record too. Yeah, man, congrats. It's a fantastic record. A lot, Dane, you know, thanks a lot, man. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.